Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, and we're only going to cover really eight verses, because there's a lot in here, and there's a lot of questions about this portion of Scripture. So I didn't want to fly through the chapter, I just want to cover the first eight verses, and you'll see why as we go through it. The last time we covered the millennial kingdom and the final rebellion against God and the resulting eternal damnation and the lake of fire. Today we're going to see that all things are made new and the promises that God has for those who are in Christ. As the today's sermon title states, it's, it's called Only the Good Stuff and will remain in the end. And after all the fire and brimstone, I believe that this is a blessing today because it's a message of encouragement for those who are in Christ. Okay, starting with verse 1. The Apostle John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. I'm just going to read Isaiah 65, uh, three verses, because I love how the Old Testament is foundational, especially to what we're studying in Revelation. Uh, there's certain theology out there that pretty much discounts everything in the Old Testament, but God's Word is eternal. The Old and the New uh, are closer than most people expect. Isaiah 65, 17 through 19, and as I read this, and then I read Revelation, you're going to see the parallels. It says, remember, this was written 2,800 years ago. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So in context, against Satan, his demons, and unfortunately those who have rejected God's way of salvation are already um, incarcerated for eternity into the lake of fire. We covered that. But heaven and earth began perfectly in Genesis. But when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and also decay, most people are not familiar with that. Not only we die, but the creation, the, the earth, the universe. And you, if you talk to some of the sciences, they talk about the, the expansion of the universe and really the decay. And that's spoken about even in the Old Testament. So there's decay of God's creation and maybe what precipitated the second law of thermodynamics. For the teens, okay, you went to school all week, maybe you have science class, and I'm going to give you some science today. I hope it doesn't bother you. But I found that in school, I didn't want to pay attention to science all that much, but when I graduated, even from college, I kept all my books, and I probably know more science now than I ever did because it's fascinating to see how it, it, it you know, coalesces with God's Word. So really, I think you'll find this interesting, and you could tell me at the end if I was a good science teacher or not. But the second law of thermodynamics is the law of positive entropy. And it basically says that everything in the universe goes from order to disorder. It's the law of decay. Now, I wonder in Genesis if some of these laws actually existed before the fall. Because before the fall, man was supposed to be eternal. But only when sin entered the world did death and decay happen. So I'm curious to know when I see the Lord, what laws of the universe, what physical and natural laws existed before sin and after sin? You ever think of that? It's pretty interesting. According to the Bible, sin had an effect not only on man, but all creation. Romans 8, 18 through 23, a few verses, says this. For I consider, the Apostle Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory 
which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption or decay or entropy into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. And we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope uh, that is seen, I'm sorry, but we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? So, yes, man is going to break down. The Bible says, I believe it's in Genesis 6, God says, you know, I will not strive with man forever. His, day, his years will be 120. So man's lifespan was cut short, but also the creation is starting to break down. If you study tectonic plates and the earth's crust, you'll see that the earth is getting more beat up and battered as time goes on. So there'll be more earthquakes, more volcanoes, and things to that nature. It's uh, pretty interesting geography. So here... Let's go back to Revelation. God is fixing what's broken. Okay, the sin curse, I'm going to keep saying that. The sin curse has been conquered, and God has to now fix to, to create something beautiful for us, uh, more maybe Edenic-like uh, situation, sort of like it was in the beginning, going back to perfection. So how's this all going to happen? How's it going to, you've heard the expression, pastors say, you talk about their material goods. Well, it's all going to burn. Well, let's, let's find out where that came from. Second Peter 3, you got to turn to this because, and you really have to pay attention because here's where the science comes in. Amazing how this fisherman, this uneducated fisherman, is going to tell us a story about physics and chemistry. Second Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. Now pay attention. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Think about energy, think about, you know, atomic level, all this kind of stuff. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, it's just an allegory, this heat stuff. Yeah, but he keeps talking about it. Great noise, great heat, energy release. It says the heavens will be dissolved. The word dissolved, the Greek word is luo, which literally means to loose or let come apart. Now, I think of the atomic level. When you split an atom, Okay? When you have nuclear fission, the splitting of an atom, you have an incredible release of heat and energy. And it says the elements will melt with fervent heat. The word for elements in the Greek is stoichia, where in the English we get stoichiometry, which means it's the branch of chemistry that, that deals with the reactions on an elemental level, be it atoms. Amazing for a fisherman to come up with this stuff. It had to be by the Holy Spirit. Now, 
We can talk about what holds an atom together. We can talk about the nuclear forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force. I want to focus on one particular force. It's called a strong nuclear force. In, in, the atom of every, in the nucleus of every atom are neutrons and protons, depending on where it is on the periodic table, depending, it depends on how much. So you have a bunch of protons that have a positive charge that are supposed to repel each other. I believe that's Coulomb's law. Anybody want to raise their hand if they remember that Coulomb's law? Uh, I'll have to look it up later. But anyway, um, what keeps those protons in that nucleus from coming apart? It's called a strong nuclear force. Ah, the scientists have figured it out. Ask a scientist, so what keeps them together? Well, it's the strong nuclear force. Okay, well, explain the strong nuclear force. Well, it's one of the forces that speak about atoms. Yeah, but what holds it together? Well, we don't know. It's just the strong nuclear force. You, you get a lot of that in science. Well, I'll just help you out here. Colossians 1.17 says, And he, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. The Greek word is sunestao, for consist, literally held together. So what I'm getting at here is you have these laws, you have these atoms. We look at the atom, we can't understand them, but we assign terms to them. But the Bible says that through Jesus, everything is held together. Okay, that also tells us that at one point in time, he's just going to let everything go. And the atoms are going to come apart. And there's going to be a great release of energy. It's pretty interesting. The question is how much will be burned up? All, some. The Greek indicates kainos, and I don't, uh, every Sunday I don't speak about Greek and science, but this Sunday I believe it's relevant, so try to bear with me here. <laughs> um, newness in character. So it is possible that the, the earth, the surface, the heavens, and there's different theories on this. Bible teachers have different ideas about this, will be burned with fire. The heavens, you know, there's oxygen, there's nitrogen, there's uh, different uh, gases in, in the atmosphere. And if you start releasing atoms, there's going to be a lot of noise, there's going to be a lot of fire, and there's going to be a lot of heat that's generated. And some have speculated that because Satan was the prince of the power of the air, that for God to let us live eternally in this place, he's got to get rid of the junk. You know, Satan's stink, his stain over what he's done over this world for thousands of years has to be cleaned up. It's like spraying the Lysol and getting every bit of Satan out of this, this uh, situation. And then the question is, it says no more sea. Well, what does that mean? I like to go to the, the beach in the summer and walk on the sand and, and look at the ocean. So some people may be disappointed by that, but there's a few explanations. There's two separate Greek words for oceans versus lakes and uh, maybe natural waterways, and the one for oceans is used here. It's possible that maybe the sea will not exist in its vastness, in its present form, uh, where it really covers, the water covers three quarters of our planet. So there's a lot of water on the planet. It's possible that the topography, you know, the, the surface of the earth, will be reconfigured so that there's not so much uh, water to land, but more of a land-water ratio. And for those of you who study science, if you remember the term Pangaea, Pangaea is a theory that the continents once were closer together, and if you bring North and South America uh, and bring them kind of eastward, and they kind of fit with Africa and Europe, and they kind of fit like puzzle pieces. Uh, it's a theory. Uh, it is possible that after the great flood of Noah, it changed the configuration of the planet. Okay? Genesis 2.6 tells us very, something very interesting. You can read Genesis, and if you're not meditating on it, you'll miss this. Genesis 2.6 tells us that there were subterranean aquifers. There was water under the surface of the earth, and there was no rain. That's why when Noah was building the, the boat, they probably thought he was crazy. 
He's like, there's going to be a great storm. What's a storm? <laughs> well, God said it, so trust me. You know, and of course, they didn't listen to him. But it tells us that there was uh, some type of aquifers under the surface that probably there might have been perforations in the earth. And what happened was probably from as we go further down into the center of the earth, there's more molten uh, elements, more molten metals, and there's a lot of heat generated. So it's possible that that heat from underneath heated up the aquifers, right? and allowed that mist to come up through the surface of the earth and water the vegetation, because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there was no rain, there was a mist that came up from the earth and watered all the vegetation. Okay, uh, stay with me here. Genesis 1 also tells us that there was waters between the firmaments, that there was a firmament, like our atmosphere, and then there was uh, water, and then there was another firmament. The water divided the firmaments from the firmaments, and the theory is that back in the beginning, okay, in Genesis, that there was sort of a water canopy that covered the whole earth, all right, and what would be the reason for that? It'd be a great greenhouse effect. No matter where you were on the planet, the sun, the sun's rays would come in, bounce off the earth, kind of get caught into that water level, and cause a uniform temperature over the whole earth. So the earth was like a tropical paradise. That would explain the dinosaurs, the reptiles could grow as big as they wanted in that particular environment. And that would explain that why we found woolly mammoths in Antarctica or different cold regions with vegetation still in their stomach. When you die, you rot, including the stuff in your stomach. So these woolly mammoths had to be flash frozen, the theory is. And how could that happen? Well, if the waters came from that level, that outer level, and came down to the earth in the flood, put more water on the earth than it was before, okay, that would change the environment. And all of a sudden, depending on where you were, if you were at the poles, depending on which way the earth was tilted, there would be a flash freezing effect. Within hours, all the animals would be frozen. And that's how you could find vegetation still in their stomachs. It's cool stuff. How many people like this? <laughs> but it's, you know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, and listen, I don't do science every week, but this, I think, is very appropriate. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that as people of faith, we don't have blind faith. I don't have blind faith. I want to know why I believe what I believe in this book, and I'm going to study it until I find the answers. There's a guy I work with at work who was uh, a physics teacher for several years. And it's cool because, you know, before I do my messages, I say, okay, strong nuclear force is this weak new. He goes, yeah, your science is good, Joe. So it's cool because, you know, I look in the books and I pretty much remember the stuff. And he, he believes in some evolution kind of thing. And we agree on the science, but we don't agree, obviously, on the origin of the science and you know, how man came to be and all that stuff. But we have very good intellectual debates, and we should know this kind of stuff as thinking people. Okay. Genesis 7-11, uh, again, the, between the aquifer, the Bible says that the waters from above and the waters from underneath, Genesis 7-11, came down and precipitated the flood of Noah. Because you could say, well, a rain for 40 days, right? Well, what does that come from? How could that be? Because we know that the clouds basically pull the, you know, through uh, pre uh, precipitation cycles, the clouds pull up the water, they're in, they're in the, the atmosphere, and then when they get full, they rain down on us, and it's this cycle. So how could all of a sudden, in Noah's day, all this water come down? The only way to explain it is, number one, the Bible says the waters from the deep, deep came up, and also the waters from above came down. So all this water that God made for a perfect environment because of sin and because of the flood, now all of a sudden, the water stayed really in the oceanic levels. All right. If, if you have any trouble with this, I don't mind. Afterwards, email me, see me in the hallway, and I'll just point this stuff out to you. I don't have a problem with that because I think it's fun. So here, 
God's creating a new heavens and a new earth, and better than what we have now. Probably no storms, probably very serene, maybe back to the Edenic-like qualities in Genesis. Now, the no more sea, um, another possibility some people say, and, and I'd like to bring the different ones in, is no more sea meaning sea is symbolic of evil. Revelation 13, the beast came out of the sea. I think that's an oversimplification, but, you know, I'm not going to tell you I have all the answers to this. And I'm just going to give you one disclaimer. Number one, have low expectations on what I teach you today. I know that sounds weird. Joe DeProsimo here on a Sunday is not going to tell you and make you have a great idea about what God's going to do because God blows me away. I'm doing the best I can with what I'm reading, but when you see what he's going to do, you're not even going to remember my teaching. <laughs> so just understand that. Low expectations. God is awesome, and we really can't wrap our mind. This is the disclaimer. We can't really wrap our mind about how he's going to do this, but it's going to be so cool to watch. Okay, the bottom line is that there was a perfect beginning. Sin marred that beginning, and in the end, God fixes it again and, and makes it new. And you know what? God's always fixing us, and I kind of like that about him. I love that about him. And we had a sin condition, and we, we went our way, but you know what? He, he sent his son to die for our sins. So now what our problem is, God always rights the wrongs. He makes all things new. He reverses the, uh, the sin curse, and that's how much God loves us. Whether we're talking about completely new or, you know, debate how he's going to do it, the bottom line is God leaves only the good stuff, as the title implies today. And we're going to see only the good stuff remains. That's how much he loves us. Verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So New Jerusalem descends. It's a city that's, that just comes out of heaven. Oh, it's, and we, some debate, well, does it actually touch down on the earth? Is it kind of floating? Do we go back and forth? But we're going to talk a little bit more about the city uh, next Sunday. I just want to, because after uh, verse 8, there's a lot more about this city. So I'm going to kind of table that. But um, Jerusalem descends, New Jerusalem, and you see some changes come in this portion of, of history. God has always focused much of his plans around earth's Jerusalem. And remember, everything the Bible says that he wants us to make here is a copy of those things in heaven. And quite possibly, I'm not going to say this dogmatically, quite possibly this is the original. <laughs> the original blueprint is actually coming down. And, and again, there's reasons why he's got to get rid of the old Jerusalem. There's a lot of stain of the dead prophets. And, and we'll talk about that next Sunday. So the first promise of this chapter is a few promises here. One is the tabernacle of God is now with men. No more separation from God. Well, let's talk about this. Explain the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made, it was sometimes called the tabernacle of meeting. You know, it started in uh, Moses' day, and then Solomon uh, picked up with building the temple, which was really a permanent tabernacle. But the bottom line with, the, with this whole thing was there was the, the holy place and the most holy place where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, and the priest can go in there once a year and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice and onto this mercy seat, and God would accept the sacrifice. But this was a place where the priests, the most holy men in society, and the high priest could only get in there and do this uh, procedure uh, f f because of the sins of the people. And, of course, that was a type of Christ. Now, what I'm trying to say here is that the people 
needed a mediator to God, and the priests were that mediator. And of course, Christ later was the perfect and ultimate mediator. But the bottom line is when you say God is tabernacled with men, that means that God is actually amongst men. God said that my glory, my physical presence will, will dwell in that holy of holies, the Shekinah glory. So this is, when you really study this, you see that there is a closeness now, a real closeness between God and men, and women, of course, and mankind in a sense. And this is a closeness not seen since Jesus. This is also a closeness not seen since Genesis, where God walked with Adam and Eve, where they were his children. But sin caused that, sep that familial separation between his children and their father, all right? So once you really get that... Um, and meditate on that, you really, it, it's a good thing. The crucifixion, Jesus shedding his blood for the remission of our sins, the veil of the temple being torn between the holy place and the most holy place, showing that because of Jesus' death, God has now more of a closeness with man. You don't need that veil anymore. Um, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, we're all part of that redemption process. And we talked about redemption being a process, okay? I believe that God is now completely tangible as a father to his sentient children. And let me explain that. Sentience. Um, God has created us and made us with senses. And I can't tell you that I've ever actually felt God with my fingertips or smelled him or saw him or heard him or, um, I don't know, what am I missing? Hear, sight, well, the whole deal. I sense God in my spirit, but not in my five senses. And here is a... a you know, here is a situation now we can re really reach out and touch him. And, and that's kind of foreign to us. Just to hug God, just to, you know, him to, you know, we, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus is there, but this is more of a, the next step in our relationship with God. And again, it's something that's hard for us to understand, embracing God as a loving father. And this is what I believe I see here. Sin was separated us from him, and here it's made right again. And I believe that God has waited thousands of years to embrace us as he did in the Garden of Eden. And I'll tell you, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that. Verse, or verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Second promise here. A subtraction equation. The former things as a result of sin no longer exist. Again, meditate on this. Thank God. No more tears. Why do we cry? Because of sadness. No more death. The Bible says that death is the last enemy to be defeated. In the last chapter, we saw death and Hades cast into the lake of fire. No more sorrow and the things that cause sorrow in our lives. No more crying. No more pain. Physical pain or emotional pain, which can be a lot worse than physical pain because it doesn't heal as quickly as the physical body heals. I don't have to do funerals anymore. Not that I don't enjoy blessing people and, and being there for them in their time of grief, but funerals are, you know, preparing to do a funeral. You got to get your, you got to get in, you know, you, you have to prepare yourself because there's a bunch of people, even if the person was a believer, they're happy that they went to be with the Lord, but there's a separation issue. They've been pulled away, a, a parent, a loved one, a, a spouse. There's a, there's a separating you know, and it's like you can't grasp them anymore. You know you'll see them again, but it's painful. This raises questions. As a matter of fact, I was sitting with my ushers uh, before service, and 
because of this particular scripture, there's a lot of questions that come up about this. And this is where I want to kind of go today. What about brainwashing? Will we recognize each other in heaven? I believe the answer is yes. Will we all walk around, you know, mind erased, like drooling babies for eternity? I think the answer is no. The bad that we experience is now gone, but there is good, and the Bible alludes to that goodness being preserved for eternity. Number one, our spiritual foundation, what God has built us up for spiritually here, that is good. That remains. Why erase that? The, um, the rewards we've seen in this chapter, that the, the rewards of the saints are, are you know, the, the Bema seat, the, the judgment in a good way of the Christians. What have they done? Are they, is it burned up or is it something that will stand the test of time? And then the elders taking off their crowns and laying them at the Lord's feet. So, yeah, we have rewards, but, you know, it goes back to the Lord anyway. That's eternal. Um, true love. God is the God of love. Christ-likeness that's been built, us in, uh, built up in us and many other scriptures that back this up. But I believe that what God does is, what this scripture means is, he takes us each individually. Now, what does he do with us now? You know, we have pride, we have arrogance, we have materialism. And as we grow in Christ, he, like this chisel, master, the master sculptor, and he chisels and he breaks away the things. And sometimes it hurts, doesn't it? When he forms us more into Christ. Okay, now we're going to be in eternity. No more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. Then God takes out his awesome chisel again with his mallet. And he says, anything that's going to cause you harm, pain bad memories, sorrow, sin, sinful thoughts, and it's broken off. And we shed that, and only the good stuff will remain, as the title implies. And that's something to look forward to. That also brings up the age of maturity. I don't believe that a person in eternity or in the, the, the last, you know, after human history is over, uh, has the same age because there's no concept of time. In other words, let me explain it. If my nine-year-old son went to heaven today, I don't believe that in all of eternity he would be an annoying nine-year-old. Uh, I don't believe that God's going to allow him to be up there annoying the saints for eternity. And if there's a frail 90-year-old person with Alzheimer's, I don't believe that they're going to, re to remain a frail 90-year-old being forgetful in heaven. Because if you think about it, anything that c is connected to time doesn't exist anymore. In the beginning were the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. But what happened before the beginning? Okay? What, what Genesis 1-1 is telling us is that time starts. There's a reason for time, a chronological order. And that's how we think. But before the creation of what we now know, God existed in eternity. And you say, well, how far does eternity go back? Well, you can't ask that question because there is no concept of time. It goes back endlessly. Well, who created God? Well, when was God's beginning? God has no beginning and God has no end. But again, it's hard for us to comprehend that. So you have Genesis 1-1, you have the entire creation, and then you have a time where time ends and eternity uh, continues again. Well, how, how long will we be in eternity? Again, you're asking a, an improper question because there's no time. You see where I'm going? And it is hard for our finite minds to concept, uh, to wrap our minds around the concept of the infinite. So I just tell everyone we're going to be cool 40-year-olds for all of eternity. Okay, now that raises another question. Where are the delineations among spirit and mind, also known as the soul, and the body? 
a friend of mine aptly put it, we're trichotomous beings. We're divided really into three parts. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 5.23 to um, really make that concept here. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Apostle Paul says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify or set you apart completely, and may your whole, watch the order here, spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me break down these three words or divisions that we are, spirit, soul, and body, for you. Now, let's go to the Greek. The first word is spirit. In the Greek, the word is pneuma, which is the completely eternal part of us. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about these parts of us in descending order. This is the part of us that's eternal. The second part is the pasuke in Greek, where in English we get the word psyche or mind, sometimes called soul, interchangeably. Now, this part, interestingly enough, is part eternal and part sloughed off. Remember, where our minds would be transformed into the image of Christ, we're supposed to have the same mind as, as other believers, which is the mind of Christ. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have things about what we think about that are sinful. Nothing in eternity uh, can be there if it's sinful. So, in a sense, it's sloughed off. So the mind, is a, there's a uniqueness, there's an identity, there's things that we spoke about before that, that are kept for eternity, but there's also parts about our mind, maybe habits and problems that um, we need to cut off and are sloughed off by God. Now the third part is the soma, or the body. In the English we get the word somatic. Now our body in its current state is not eternal. We know in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Apostle Paul says, in the blinking of an eye, uh, we will all be changed. Our bodies will be transformed. So in this state that you see me now, I'm not going to exist because my skin maybe lasts 100 years in the heart. Uh, a good cardiologist will tell you that it's good for about 150 years if the body would allow it. But these parts have an expiration date. Sometimes the Greek word sarx is also used for the flesh, and we'll, we'll talk about these. Now, when Jesus, in Matthew 10, 28, talks of God sending the soul into hell, he's speaking about pasuke, which is a further indication that we will, not we, but those who are not in Christ will be conscious eternally in torment. There's too much about hell, and there's too much in there to indicate, uh, contrary to the annihilationists who believe you just cease to exist. So there's a, a consciousness of eternal punishment. Where does that leave the heart? When we look at the Psalms, when we look at the Old Testament, we hear about the heart in Hebrew. Well, Hebrew thought, we know, I know my heart is cardiac muscle that contains of four chambers. Well, so where's my thoughts and my heart? Uh, the, the Old Testament was very uh, poetic. You, you know, you, all my bowels would, would, you know, be into you, but I don't, my bowels, I don't think you want my bowels. <laughs> So when we talk about the, the heart and we talk about Hebrew thought, we're speaking about the will. We all have wills, the intellect, and the emotions. And you can take all that and put that in the mind category, okay? And sometimes some of these words have been used interchangeably. Now, what about the brain? The brain is an interesting character because the mind... All right, let's, let's do the brain first. The brain... Is consist of, you know, a few lobes, you know, this, the cerebrum, the medulla, all that kind of stuff. And the brain has a function. It, it's, the, it's the director to the nervous system, and it does a lot of different things. 
But the brain also has things like the, um, the um, frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and all these things have to do with emotions, memories, recall, and things like that, reasoning. So the brain is really not the mind. The brain is physical. But the mind can make thoughts and, and ideas and concepts like um, forgiveness and uh, spiritual things that are really non-physical. I know it's going to get a little confusing, but I'll try to wrap it up. The, the mind is also connected to the spirit because sometimes the mind thinks about things and the spirit says, that's not right, that's sinful. And you kind of have like a little friction going on inside your, your whole body. But the brain is kind of a barrier between the body and the mind in a sense because it can influence the mind, and we'll talk about that. Okay. Let me give you an example. Well, let me just say this first. I don't think that we'll need a brain in this form in heaven. And to some, that won't be much of a change. <laughs> Couldn't resist that. So let me give you an example. So I'm doing my service, right? Walk away from my notes. Now I got to use memory. What's the thing I want to say? I'm looking. I'm seeing who's sleeping and who's paying attention. I'm listening for laughter, and then I stop and pause so I can make my next point. My inner ear is kind of giving me balance so I don't fall over. My hands move, and I'm, I'm going along. Now, and memory's remembering what the points that I want to say in bullet form kind of in my mind, right? All of a sudden, and this has happened, I've talked to other pastors, I'm not completely out of my mind, a thought will come in from left field. Maybe it's a sinful thought. Maybe I don't like somebody. Maybe it's just something that's totally not edifying. And while I'm doing my thing, you, don't, you, you see that I'm not missing a beat. But a thought comes in, and it's a bad thought. So now inside of me, I don't know where it is, I'm saying, okay, Lord, that's got to go. And I'm praying to the Lord to get that thought out of there because it's a distraction to me. Has that, has that happened to anybody here, or is it just me? Is anybody going to show up next Sunday, or are going to say, he's nuts? <laughs> So you see how the spirit, the mind, the brain, and the body kind of work together, but there are delineations. Okay. The brain. You have your autonomic nervous system, which controls heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, and pulse. It happens automatically. You don't have to think about digestion or your heart rate. It just happens. It's divided up into the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight. So you see a threat, your adrenaline goes up, you decide whether you want to fight the threat or run away. Your para now that's a survival, okay? And we're going to talk about survival too. Your brain is teaching you to help the body to survive. You have the parasympathetic nervous system. So what happens is when the threat is gone, the parasympathetic nervous system is actually stronger than the sympathetic nervous system, and it teaches you to rest, relax, and digest again. That's also a survival technique, because if you were running on adrenaline all the time, you'd burn out and you'd die. So you see how the brain keeps the body alive. You have your reflexes, and these are all part of the body's directive of the organism to survive. You're the organism. How am I doing with the science so far? Are you guys with me back there? Good. And I would just say this. Some in Christianity are afraid to talk about the study of the mind. I'm not. And the reason being is why in, Christ, in Christianity do we leave the study of the mind, behaviors, which are very important, especially to people of God, why do we leave the study of the mind to unregenerate men, to secular men like Freud and Jung? You know, these guys, they had their own issues, believe me, with their childhood and all. So why don't we as Christians study this? Because it is part of who we are. It's part of who God made us. I think it's important. Now, let's talk about how this all fits together. All right? In 1999, and I, I've said this before, 
a little bit before that. As, as a non-believer, I, um, in the, or I say the early 90s, I was led to believe the world taught me that to be something in this world, you gotta be aggressive. So in my early 20s, I bought my first house. I worked double and triple shifts to, to fix it up. I went to the gym in the morning. I did all this stuff. And I went like this for months and months and months. And there was something in me telling me to slow down, but I didn't listen to it. So in 1999, the house of cards all came down. I suffered from terrible panic attacks. And what it was was my brain, my emotions, my body just said, hey, we're done with you. We're tired and we need a break. And it really was like a defense mechanism. And what it was designed to do was to get me to stop. I had to take off of work a few months and I had to totally rest and take it easy. Now, uh, in 99, I was newly married. My wife was pregnant. And let me just show you how the difference goes back and forth. And I was, if, if any of you have had anxiety, it makes you, you, you can't breathe, you're irritable, things bother you, you gotta sit in the back and run out in case you, you get nervous, uh, you, you know, you, can, you snap at people, you have social issues, you don't wanna be around people. It does this, all these bizarre things to you because it's the brain is trying to rest and it needs you to just do nothing for a while. Now, when my wife and I would interact, we were newly married, she's pregnant, there's a lot of stresses. And I would be short with her at times. I would be irritated. And it was because, let's follow this, from the organism standpoint, she should understand because there's something wrong with me and she needs to take care of me because I need to rest because I'm the breadwinner. This is how the flesh thinks. But there was another force, <laughs> I see some smiles. There was another force coming into my life because I was a new believer also. And that other force said, you're selfish. That's your wife, she's the weaker vessel. You need to die to yourself. And the two of them would kind of go back and forth. But you know, you know how it was rectified? Yes, there was something wrong with me. Yes, I needed to rest. Yes, people needed to be understanding in my flesh. But the Spirit said, well, if that's your problem, you're going to treat your wife that way, put on your sweats, put on your sneakers, and go take a walk down the, the block until you can take it easy. And that's how it was resolved. In those days, I did a lot of walking. <laughs> I walked many miles. But you kind of see how you have the flesh and the Spirit. And I got to tell you, I'm very open-minded when it comes to emotional issues, but it's not an excuse to sin. And there were those who were around me that loved me enough to tell me, you're wrong, you're a Christian, you should know better, but you don't understand my circumstance. You see how, you see how they kind of come together? It's not used as, a, as an excuse to sin. The attention needs to be on God and God alone. Now, we're born physically, and when you're born physically out of your mother's womb, there's one directive. The organism must survive. You come out of the womb, I'm hungry. I'm gonna scream until mommy and daddy, you'll experience that soon, until mommy and daddy come in my room, I don't care what time of night it is, and feed me. I'm wet, my feces are irritating my butt. Come in here and change me, you know? That's my toy, give it back to me. Even babies know how to survive. That's a directive that's put into them as a fleshly, unregenerate person. Now. When you become born again, it's an automatic system. There's another directive that's added. So this directive is the primary directive. When you become born again, now you're regenerate. You're a spiritual being. And there's a boom, another directive comes up. And this directive says to that directive, you need to glorify God. You need to die to yourself and die to your family and die to others. You need to die physically, if need be, for, for the cause of Christ. And furthermore, I'm going to get ahead of you. That's what we're supposed to do as believers. 
Now, do you think that this directive was really happy with this new guy on the block telling it what to do and getting in front of it? Of course not. That's why the Bible says that the flesh and the spirit, they're friends. They love each other. Okay, you, you're awake. Paul says they war with each other. You've got your flesh like a sumo wrestler. He's on his haunches, and you've got the spirit. And they do this, and they're ready. And they launch, and they clash, and they're fighting. And you know what? Sometimes that fighting goes on within our own souls. And you know what? You can choose which one wins. You could be the one that makes the one stand down and the other one take over. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it's the flesh and sometimes it's the spirit. So when you're wondering if you're going crazy or not because there's something you want to do in your flesh that's wrong, but something else is telling you you can't do that, you're a Christian, you're not nuts. This is what happens to spiritual beings because we're still tied to the flesh, but the spirit should be taking over. And furthermore, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be quenched and grieved. You could either be, you've heard the term, on fire for God. I just have a burning for God. Or you can quench the spirit so much so and, and abate it to the point where it's a little pilot light. Hey, did anybody see the Holy Spirit? Well, let me lift the cover of the stove. Oh, there it is. It's the pilot light. And some Christians go through life with a little pilot light. And some Christians go through life with a fire in their belly for the Lord. And we control with our wills which one is going to win. So, Spirit will often tell you to pray. Seek God in this problem. Stay close to him. Sometimes the flesh will say, listen, we just need to survive right now. And quite frankly, from where I'm standing, I don't think God's helping out. And they'll go back and forth, right? And this is what happens. The bottom line is... Only the good stuff goes, okay? Many of you and have some awful and painful memories. The long, longer that you've lived, the more you accumulate junk in your life. And if I gave you about 30 seconds right now and said, think about the worst things that happened in your life, you could all think of something because they never go away. They're still there. All it takes is a trigger to bring it back. When we say, I put that out of my mind, we really don't. Because a certain trigger will bring back those memories. And even if you say, well, it's 9 and 10 years old, I don't remember anything, it's still there. But it's your body's defense mechanism to keep you sane so that you don't have to remember those painful memories. There's so much sorrow in this world, and it would be really nice, that it's just like a pool filter. If you could kind of turn on the back flush thing and get all the junk out of the filter, and, hey, the pool's clean again. As, as human beings, we're not that easy creatures to deal with. And many Christians can hide feelings of insecurity, fear of rejection, trouble socializing, and guilt from past actions. But I'm here to tell you that the Heaven Express, all that luggage that you're carrying, you can leave it at the way station because that stuff's not going with you. And there's the message of encouragement for you. All that luggage, all that junk that you've accumulated through your life, you can leave at the station. Because when you get onto the Heaven Express, none of it goes. So here's really an expression of, of hope, right, and encouragement. Now, I just want to, one caveat here is that we can have victory in Christ here. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to make this a psych lesson and saying that, you know, let's go back to our childhood and all that stuff. When you become born again, you're born of the Spirit, and you can have victory in Christ. So I'm not trying to say to you that, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. If you allow the spirit to be stronger in your life, the more you get closer to God, all that stuff doesn't matter as much, okay? But living the life that we live, we can be overcomers in Christ. And the Bible calls us to be overcomers in Christ, 
okay? But I just want you to know that when we get to heaven and when in the end, you know, even, even me, there's times a sinful thought will pop into my mind and I hate that about me. All that's going to be shed, all right? It's going to be good. Verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. The third promise, I will make all things new. Because why? Because of the corrupting influence of sin. These words are faithful and true. It's the same descriptors that were given of Jesus in chapter 19. You can take that to the bank. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The fourth promise, the fountains of, of the waters of life. Jesus speaks of the living waters in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7. And in those days, you have to understand what a great, Jesus had the best parables, the best uh, analogies. Because in those days, you know, listen, I'm up here, I got my bottled water. In those days, you were out there working in the hot sun. If they could bring it in something that was great, some type of cauldron or some type of container, um, if it got to you and it was free of bacteria and it was cold, um, you were lucky. So water back then was something that everybody needs, but a lot of people went and were thirsting because they didn't have water. So Jesus says, yeah, you know, you can have a drink, but you can drink water to the day you die. And an hour later, two hours later, you'll be thirsty again. But the waters that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And he wasn't talking about physically, he was talking about spiritually. So this is a promise to all believers, never to thirst again physically, but more important, never to thirst again spiritually. Verse 7. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's the fifth promise, that of inheritance. All good parents want to leave something to their children, uh, if they have something, of course. Um, and in this case, the father leaves an inheritance, of course, while he's still alive, because God can't die. He's eternal. So how do we overcome? How do we do that? Jesus won the victory. The only way to overcome is to be in Christ, because we kind of... You know, it's almost as if you're fighting in a war and you're a soldier and you're kind of there and another battalion, you know, wins the battle. And, you know, since you're associated with that military, the army, you get the glory too and they throw the confetti at you. Jesus is the one who overcame. Jesus is the one who, who won the war. Jesus is the reason why we don't, our, our sins are forgiven. So when we, Jesus is the victor and we become victors when we're in Christ. You see how easy it is? We kind of ride his coattails. Jesus is the one who shed his blood on the cross so that we could have our remission of sin. And what we have to do now is take hold of that, lay hold of that, that sacrifice so that our, our sins are completely wiped away, past, present, and future. We become adopted. John 1.12 says that we're adopted into the family of God. And don't forget, we have to abide in him. Remember what I talked about, the painful memories, and, but how we could be victors now? and overcome that, it's only through John 14 and John 15. Jesus says that you must abide in me. There must be a relationship with us and Christ. It doesn't mean you come to church because your parents want you to come to church. It doesn't mean that you're part of the Christian community, so you're okay. You're okay, I'm okay. It means that we abide in Christ, that my son is nine, and they're, they're, you know, I believe that he wanted to be baptized. Believe it or not, last year I baptized him. It was awesome. But he has to, to develop his own faith. He can't ride daddy and mommy's coattails, pastor's kid syndrome. He has to have his own faith. He has to, John 14 and John 15, abide with Christ himself. 
We don't ride anybody's coattails, even our spouses, to victory. Okay? It's got to be that relationship. Or, or sorry, let me go to the next verse, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, murderers is, is fourth, check this out. Sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the sixth promise is, although it's a sixth promise is to those, actually it's a negative promise to those who are not overcomers but want to be overcome by the world, these types of people won't, aren't going to make it. Now, does this mean, this is very important, <laughs> that if I've ever lied or lusted or was fearful, I'm going to hell? No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, after Revelation, we're going to be doing James. After James, I really want to do the epistles of John. And we'll really talk about how there's a practice. If you make a practice of certain types of things, uh, instead of making a practice of getting closer to the Lord, this is where you run into big problems. So we're going to see that. Are we overcoming the world through the Spirit, or are we overcome by the world? 2 Peter 2, 18, I believe, through 22 uh, is a great scripture about, yeah, the false teachers, but certainly anybody can fall into this. It's those who uh, become, you know, they, they have a profession of faith, they go back to the world, there's a profession of faith, they go back to the world, and they're eventually overcome by the world, okay? And they, the Bible says it's better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to know it and turn from the holy commandment and go back into the world. So we're either overcoming the world through the Spirit or we're being overcome by the world. There's no middle ground. We're all, we're all in one of those two categories. Now notice this. Cowardice, unbelief, and abominations come before murder. God doesn't like cowardice. I remember a story of Pastor Richard Wombrand. He's gone to be with the Lord, him and his wife. He was a pastor in Romania after the Nazis were defeated and the communists took over. They went from the frying pan into the fire in Romania. And the communists were very antagonistic, as they still are towards Christianity. That whole nice thing that you hear from the media is a bunch of lies. Because through true communism, you can't, the state has to be more important than God. And even if they allow some churches, they're very watered down. So this happened, I believe, in the 50s. And it was a dinner. The communist leaders of Romania invited all the pastors to this dinner. And they, they muscled the pastors into just having all their followers swear allegiance to communism over Christ. And I remember reading the book, um, Sabina and Richard were at the table and she elbowed him. She said, aren't you going to go up there and say something? And he turned to her and said, you realize that if I go up there and say something, you may never see your husband again. And she turned to him and said, I didn't marry a coward. With that, he sprang up, he went up to the pulpit and he nailed communism. And he talked about Christ and Christ's return, and that st started his long trouble with the secret police and being uh, tortured for 14 years for Christ. You know, we need to be, in America, we're not persecuted like that. So the least we can do is when we're confronted with a situation, are you, are you a Christian? Are you one of those born-agains? You know what? Be proud of it. You know, let's not be cowardice about it. Yeah, sure I am. And people will eventually respect you more for your convictions than they will for your flip-flopping. So... Cowardice, unbelief, uh, abominations. Uh, if we look at unbelieving and abominations, they're both bad, but from opposite ends of the spectrum. Unbelief discounts or dismisses the God of creation. Abomin the abominable believe God, but profane God at every turn. Okay, so they're both bad. One is discounting God. The other one is believing in God, but trying to profane his name at every turn. And they all come before murder. No reverence for God. 
And then you have the rest which are pretty much obvious that I don't have to go into explain. So only the good stuff gets into eternity and only the good stuff gets us into eternity and makes us happy. And there's some things about all of us that if we're honest with ourselves that we want shed. And we're, this is a relief to us. You know, I could tell you that, I'm not going to say it here, but I could tell you the 10 worst things about myself because I'm good, be, at, good, and good at being introspective. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's things we don't like about ourselves. But all those bad things and negative things about me aren't coming with me when God makes the new heaven and the new earth. And I like that. Um, so what do we have here? We can all say with honesty that this is going to be a great day and this should be an encouraging message. And I want to read one scripture before we close. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. He says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, with an exclamation point. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we shall know, or we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that's true. The more we meditate on the scripture, the more we understand who we're dealing with, the more we understand our creator and the one who has given us life and eternal life, the more we meditate on that, the more we will change because we'll just be so excited that nothing else will, be, will matter. And that's the hope that I have, that I will be like him, I will be better, and I will see him for what he is. Let's pray.